This week on Geek Explained, with the next chapter in Dick Grayson's superhero career on the horizon, we're taking a look at one of his defining stories. So join me as I put the Geek Explained spotlight on Batman: The Black Mirror. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the latest edition of our Geek Explained Spotlight series, where every month I take a look at a specific graphic novel, comic, or just all-around cool thing and talk about why I love it so much. And this month, we're talking about Batman the Black Mirror, one of my favorite Batman stories, one of my favorite Dick Grayson stories, and he's got a lot going on right now. We're getting a brand new ongoing series series with the talents of Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo at the helm. I cannot wait for that book to drop, and it's got me rereading all kinds of Dick Grayson stories, including this one. So we'll be talking all about this book in this week's episode. We also have our latest weekly review on the newest episode of WandaVision. I can't wait to talk about WandaVision. I love it so much. It's so good. And of course, we have this week's comics countdown. But before we get into to all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous, and we've got a lot of news to talk about in all four categories, so let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Kicking things off with miscellaneous news here, we got two pieces of video game news I want to really quickly just talk about. Uh, We have the latest war table for the Marvel's Avengers game. I know, it's still around. It's still going, somehow. Um, If you are If you aren't aware, if you haven't been playing the game, they did drop the Kate Bishop DLC earlier this year. And with this newest war table, they let us know that the next DLC with uh, featuring the other Hawkeye, Clint Barton, and going into the Future Imperfect storyline is going to be dropping on March 18th alongside the next-gen versions of the game. So for uh, PS5, Xbox Series X or Series S owners, uh, you'll be able to get uh, standalone copies or have the uh, original copies from the previous gen upgraded at no extra cost. And all of this is going to be dropping on March 18th. Um, I, I'm i going to be honest here, I haven't been playing the game. I have been playing it since probably like early December. So I haven't even uh, played the Kate Bishop stuff. I've been kind of waiting until they had more content so I didn't just blow through it in like four or five hours and then not pick it up again for two more months so I might jump back in especially with some of the uh, costumes that they had for uh, for Clint for this so I'm interested I'm very interested to see which direction they go with this we got no updates on further uh, DLC we're still waiting on the PlayStation exclusive Spider-Man Black Panther has been 
on the horizon for a while so we'll see if we get any more updates on the day that this releases also in video game news we got a bunch of info for overwatch 2 which is also still in development i don't remember when we talked about it last but uh we we actually did an episode it's in the archives we want to go check it out um back when the game was first announced where i did a full on uh story recap for the events leading up to and during the uh, first Overwatch game. So go check that out if you're interested. But um, during the virtual BlizzCon that's been go- that was going on this past week, we got a bunch of new info talking um, specific tweaks to the game that they're making, both to gameplay as well as new uh, game play or uh, game mode types so we're gonna have you know the normal pvp we're getting a story as well as what they're calling hero missions which are basically you join up with some friends and you take your stuff in they also uh, shed a little bit more light on the progression system how you're going to be able to level up your characters i don't think they haven't said but i don't think that that's going to translate into pvp stuff um But for all the PvE stuff, I am totally in on that. Um, I'm also really interested in these new maps that they showed off. They showed off a few new maps, uh, most notably, at least for me, Rome and New York City. Um, That's fantastic. I am all for getting new maps, getting new uh, game modes. Uh, They announced also that specific... um, maps that we've had in the past will be getting updates like i guess in king's row there's a gate that's always kind of been been there on the map but there will be a point at least in overwatch 2 once that comes out whenever it comes out um that you're going to be able to go beyond that gate and your payload might go different directions so that's really cool uh some updated skins and this has kind of been you know overwatch has kind of been the butt of the joke uh over the past week they showed updated skins for farah uh widowmaker and um reaper and you know these are all cosmetic changes to kind of update them show that a little bit of time has passed and people are just just oh just roasting the hell out of overwatch and i love it i love it you know if if you can't poke fun at what you love then why even why even take the time but i'm very excited about this it looks great uh still no release date so i'm not expecting any time before like summer of 2022 so summer of next year but we will just have to see uh we also got two pieces of non-video game news in our miscellaneous here uh marvel has regained the rights to jessica jones and the punisher now this means that they can use them in film tv whatever they want to do with them uh which has got a lot of people pushing for both john bernthal and Kristen ritter to come back in the roles Uh, i've got my fingers crossed i love both of the portrayals of those characters um though i've you know i've talked about here and there about my uh complicated feelings on the punisher character but Kristen ritter is jessica jones yes please sign me up uh we also have some heartbreaking news and that Daft Punk, almost the the sound of a generation, has uh, broken up after being together for 28 years. They released a video on YouTube called Epilogue announcing their breakup. Um, it's it's sad, you know. Daft Punk was kind of the the leading force in the EDM movement in the uh, early 2000s, and I will always 
love and cherish Daft Punk, specifically for the Tron Legacy soundtrack. You know how much I love Tron, you know how much I love that, both those movies. Um, and Daft Punk was the perfect choice to, um, to accompany that film. So I have a lot of questions on what that means for Tron going forward, but right now we are in a state of mourning, so we will give them a moment of silence. And we're going to move on to film news. So with film news here, got three pieces of news that I think are pretty interesting. Uh, first off, we have a uh, we got our first trailer for Cruella. This is the um, the next installment of what seems to be a line of Disney films trying to make their uh, villains more relatable or compassion. I don't know. Um, I have, I have no interest in the concept behind this movie. I don't know who this is made for um, because Cruella is like, is a terrible person. Like there are just, it's just awful. Um, Emma Stone is playing the role. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, it's weird to see kind of where Emma Stone has landed following uh, La La Land, it almost seems. Like, that was kind of a flashpoint for her, and now, like, I don't hear a whole lot about her. But who knows? Um, it's it's going to be a film that is going to be coming out, so we'll see exactly what happens there. And then two pieces of DC film news. I know, right? Uh, first off, we have um, reports that Angel... Manuel Soto, who has worked on uh, various projects uh, for HBO, for Warner Brothers and such, is being tapped to direct a Blue Beetle solo film, uh, which is going to center around Jaime Reyes and is going to be the first Latino-led superhero film for DC. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, You know, I'm a Ted Kord guy, but I have always really enjoyed Jaime Reyes as a character, so I am on board for this. We also got casting news for uh the flash solo film and i say that with every quotation you could ever put around the word solo um sasha kaye kale kali i'm sorry um has been cast as supergirl that's right we have a we have an hispanic uh, Supergirl, who's been cast for uh, for this Flash solo film, which is feeling less and less like a Flash film in the first place, and more like a, hey, let's throw everything but the kitchen sink, and maybe even that too in there. Um, it's pretty cool that we're getting, you know, this... Um, this race-bent version of the character. Uh, I have faith, you know, the director of the Flash film, uh, Annie Muschietti, you know, put up this video of him, you know, informing her that she got the role, which is really heartwarming. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see what they do with this character, if it's going to be anything beyond just a cameo. Um, but I, I'm really waiting for them to actually announce Flash in this Flash solo movie. Uh, we'll just see. I don't. I I don't have very high hopes for the film, but um, we'll have to see what happens. I'm uh, moving on to TV news. We got our speaking of uh, DC. We got our first look at HBO Max's Aquaman: King of Atlantis animated limited series. Uh, this is. We talked about this before on the podcast that it's going to be. Um, Basically, like a four to five, maybe six episode uh, miniseries, just detailing uh, Arthur getting used to the uh, role as the new King of Atlantis. I believe Jason Momoa is coming back for this. I don't know, but they are supposed to be connected. But the animation, woof. This is looking like... um, 
like adventure time stuff uh and you know i'm not a huge fan of like that kind of um that kind of animation style but it is different it is unique it is something that sets it apart from not just other dc properties but other dc animated properties so i will wait to uh i will hold off on my verdict until i actually see the show uh we also know that uh there are rumors floating around about another hbo max series centered around constantine uh we know that there's supposed to be some kind of justice league dark thing in the works for hbo max but we don't know exactly where they're going with it um this could be the first step in that if they're trying to set up different series for the characters and then bring them together for that but uh, i'm always down for constantine um i have as you know if you've listened to this podcast i am absolutely head over heels for the matt ryan version of the character but it seems that this isn't going to be the version of the character that is going to be leading the series because they are specifically looking for a poc version of this character which i am super excited about that sounds really cool there's nothing inherently about john constantine's character that um requires him to be white and blonde um and i feel like that's been that point has been strengthened over the years as we've looked into uh constantine's bisexuality or his pansexuality um all the different things about that character that make him much more than just your uh your doctor strange light with a cigarette um but specifically it looks like they're looking for a riz ahmed uh esque actor which just just cast Riz Ahmed. He would crush it. He would absolutely crush it. This is the same thing I was saying when they were talking about, oh, we want an Alison Brie type for She-Hulk. Then just cast Alison Brie. Um, that's not to say that I don't like Tatiana... Um, oh, I can't remember her last name. Um, but that's not to say that I don't think that she's going to kill it. I think she is. But in this kind of same regard, like if you're looking for this type of character and you know that this actor would crush the role, just cast the actor. Uh, we also got a brand new trailer for the Invincible animated series, which is dropping next month. Looks fantastic. I'm very, very excited about this. You know how how happy I am with this cast, how happy I am with this story. I am currently uh, reading through Invincible for the very first time, and I may be covering it in a future series for the podcast. Who knows? We'll just have to see. But uh, again, it looks fantastic. And then two uh, quick last pieces of DC TV news. We do know now that uh, Harley Quinn season three has begun recording. I know that it was more or less up in the air. I don't remember if they specifically um, uh, confirmed that a third series or a third season was greenlit. But here we are. They're recording. I'm excited about that. I love this Harley Quinn animated series, and I can't wait to get more. And then also we have uh, some casting news for Star Girl season two. Uh, Star Girl was very interesting. If you go back, uh, I covered it as one of our uh, Wild Card Weekly reviews, and I ended up really enjoying it. I, you know, how much of a sucker I am for the JSA. Uh, it was clear that this was made with a lot of love even if it is you know your kind of run-of-the-mill uh cw flavoring but uh one thing that i was very curious about at the end of that season was if we were going to see more jsa members we had seen uh our man we'd seen wildcat we'd seen um 
a few others, and I was really hoping that they were going to show other members. Like, we saw specifically that Jay Garrick was part of this group. We saw his helmet, we saw his banner, the whole deal, and it looks like Jay Garrick is going to be showing up, and he will be played once again by John Wesley Shipp. I love that. John Wesley Shipp was born to play this character. Uh, but specifically, it looks like this might not be the same version of the character that has been on The Flash, because as as we know in the original multiverse for uh, the uh, Arrowverse, uh, Jay Garrick was on Earth 3, while this specifically post-crisis, uh, this uh, Stargirl series takes place on Earth 2. So is this going to be a different version of the character? Has Earth th- has the original Earth 3 just been folded into this Earth 2? I don't know, but I'm very excited, especially because this Jay Garrick from what we saw of him in the uh, banners and such and uh, pictures and whatnot from the first season. He has that classic Jay Garrett comics design, which I adore. So we'll just have to see exactly what they do with that. And then rounding out the news this week with comics, we've got two pieces of comics news. First off, over on the Marvel side, we got a new Shang-Chi ongoing series announced with Jun Lun Yang and DK Ruan reprising their roles as writer and artist from their Shang-Chi miniseries, which I really, really enjoyed. Um... This is great. I mean, I love both of those creators. You know how much of a sucker I am for Jin Lun Yang. And I thought that their version of Shang-Chi was very new reader friendly, really got you to the heart of the character. If you are wanting to get a crash course on that character, that is the miniseries to go to. And then now, once you finish that series, you will have an ongoing series that you can uh, pick up every single month or however they decide to release it and then over on the dc side very exciting news we got two digital first series announced that will be kicking off on july 27th and they're very familiar to those of you who might not even be comics fans the two series in question are batman 89 helmed by sam ham in writing with art by joe quinones and superman 78 written by robert venditti with art by wilfredo torres uh, these are continuing Continuations of the Keaton and Reeve uh, versions of the characters, respectively, which makes me very excited because you know how much I love that Christopher Reeve Superman. Um, it's not confirmed exactly how much of the continuity of the uh, following films will go into these films. Uh, we know that at least these uh, these comics will be um, taking place. After the initial chapters, so this will be continuing on from the initial Batman 89, and same with uh, the Superman in 1978. Um, We don't really know. All we know is that the creative teams are going to be giving this a lot of love. Uh, From what I understand, the first six chapters will be dropped on July 27th for both books, and then they'll be released, I believe, for the following six weeks um, digitally, and then we'll get the uh, issues... Uh, I believe released for each of them will be kind of double packed into six issues for each and then we'll get heart, uh, collected editions at the end of the year. I'll probably wait until the collected editions come out just so that I can read them all together. But this is very exciting and I'm really excited about these creative teams as well. I'm not super familiar with Sam Ham, but Joe Quinones has been pitching this for years, for years. And he's done some really cool designs that kind of blend both the 
uh, Keaton aesthetics with the aesthetics of the Batman animated series, which did spawn from the success of the first two Keaton movies. Um, I'm really excited about this. And then over on the Superman side, Wilfredo Torres did the Batman 66 comics, which were fantastic. And Robert Venditti just finished a run of Hawkman, which I would absolutely recommend you check out. So I'm really excited about this. Comic news is always worth celebrating. And speaking of comics, that's going to wrap up this week's news, and we're going to roll right on into the main course, the entree, if you will, of this week's episode as we put the Geek Explained spotlight on Batman the Black Mirror. I think you crazy. This is our latest edition of the Geek Explain Spotlight, and this month we're putting the spotlight on Batman the Black Mirror. Uh, before we get into everything, a big old spoiler warning just for you right now. Um, I am going to be going fairly in-depth into the story, so if you haven't read this, take the time. It's wonderful. Go read it. Come back, and we will be discussing it. But before we get into the story itself, I want to talk about a little bit about the idea of Batman as a detective. Uh, as you may or may not know, Batman made his first appearance in Detective Comics number 27. And ever since then, Batman and the concept of Detective Comics has always been um, uh, difficult to define. A lot of people see Batman in a lot of different ways. That's what happens when you have a character stand the test of time who has gone on as long as he has. And We've seen various different incarnations of the character, from the Dark Detective to the Caped Crusader to part of the dynamic duo. We've seen different adaptations of the character where they focus a lot more on his, you know, on his uh, tortured psyche, where they focus a lot more on his combat. But something that's always spoken to me about the character is his detective skills. You know, Batman is the world's greatest detective, and just like Sherlock Holmes, the things that would excite me about his stories, at least the ones that I really keyed into, were the stories where he was trying to solve a case, where he was trying to solve a mystery. You know how much I love mysteries, how much of a sucker I am for a good mystery, and some of the Batman comics that I've come across are a lot of the best uh, Sherlock Holmes stories that just have to do with a guy running around dressed as a giant bat. And Batman, even though he's gone through a lot of different versions, a lot of different reboots, a lot of different incarnations over the decades, has always 
come back in one form or another to that detective, to that person who solves mysteries, who solves crimes, and a lot of times in a way that the reader can easily follow along. And that's what was so engrossing to me as a young comic book reader was how I could follow along with Batman as he solved a case. And I would say out of all of the um, companions that Batman has had over the years, all of the partners, all the sidekicks that he's had, the one that always seemed to contrast him the most was a little-known character. You might have heard of him. His name is Dick Grayson. The very first Robin, the boy who put on the pixie boots. Uh, Dick Grayson is not what I would consider a great detective, which is what made him um, contrast with Bruce really well. And what made that partnership of Batman and Robin work so well is that they balanced each other out. And when the character started to really catch fire, he started to show up in his own stories. He started to show up in stories with the Teen Titans. He made the jump from Robin to Nightwing. Uh, we got to see the character get fleshed out a little bit more, besides him just being the happy-go-lucky sidekick to Bruce Wayne's dark and brooding vigilante. And as time went on and the role that Dick Grayson got to uh, got to play in the greater DC universe started to expand more and more and more, there was kind of this understanding, at least for a lot of people, at least, you know, in my perspective, that at some point Dick Grayson was going to take up that mantle of Batman, however temporary, however, um, you know, whatever circumstances he was under at a certain point, Dick Grayson was going to have to take up that mantle and take on the responsibilities of beating, of being <laughs> the uh, protector of Gotham. And that to me always proved or always provided a really interesting juxtaposition because my, again, my favorite you know, version of the Batman character is the world's greatest detective. It's Sherlock Holmes with uh, a utility belt and a Batmobile. And I wasn't sure when the final crisis happened, when we got Batman R.I.P. and Bruce Wayne seemingly died in the final battle against Darkseid, and it was decided through the art or through the story, The Battle for the Cal, that Dick Grayson would finally be stepping onto the main stage and would be taking his place as the Caped Crusader. How they would, how DC Comics and how the writers of this character would tackle the concept of Dick Grayson having to become the world's greatest detective. You know, through the years we had seen how the Robins kind of shaped the different aspects of Batman. You know, Dick Grayson was always the kid at heart, the kid that uh, Bruce Wayne could never be. Jason Todd was the jaded um really the heart of Gotham and what Gotham can do to a person. And Tim Drake, I always found, was the best uh, little mini Batman. He was the one that uh, had all the tech smarts. He's the one that was arguably you know, slated to be a better detective than even Bruce. And the way that 
these characters grew and evolved and showed that they were representatives in a sense of the different facets of Batman. It almost made more sense to me if we were going to stick in the direction of, you know, Dick Grayson becoming Batman that he wouldn't take on the kind of, you know, mysteries and the kind of uh, detective stories that we would be used to or that we would see if say Tim Drake became Batman. And that, you know, that made me kind of sad because again, you know, that, that's my Batman. My Batman is the one who solves mysteries. But at the same time, Dick Grayson was the character that I grew up with. Dick Grayson was uh, my guy. And when I saw that there was a book coming out, you know, that would, that at least promised to make Dick Grayson a detective, that forced Dick Grayson into an unfamiliar uh, role that forced him into uncharted waters, I was chomping at the bit to see Dick Grayson, world's greatest detective. And that's what we got with Batman the Black Mirror. Now, Batman the Black Mirror is a uh, collection of stories that was originally printed in the pages of Detective Comics, issues 871 through 881. And over the years, this is always a book that I kind of go back to. This is always a Batman story that I go back to when I think about the best Batman stories. I've talked about it before on the podcast. I've mentioned it here and there that this is one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. And not just because it's got a great mystery, but it's got all of the all of the continuity, all of the history of the Bat family and brings it into this you know, lightning in a bottle kind of story that made it an instant classic at the time. Now, the creators behind this story are larger than life at this point when it comes to comics and when it comes to that industry. Scott Snyder has positioned himself whether, you know, no matter how you want to feel about him, Scott Snyder has positioned himself as one of the seminal comics creators in all of Uh, comics history he's on the level of creators that will stick with you and people that will say this is my writer this is my you know the guy that I would hand the reins of any character to and I know he would do it justice and though I will say that more or less I've somewhat fallen out of love with Scott Snyder as a writer when it comes to the big bombastic DC stories like Dark Knight's Death Metal, you know, the Justice League book that he was writing. Um, I still have a soft spot for this Scott Snyder because he was the guy who really um, put a stamp on Dick Grayson when he was in his early days as Batman, alongside, of course, Grant Morrison, who put their own spin on the struggle that Dick Grayson would have to face as the new caped crusader. But alongside Scott Snyder in this book, he was... um, he was flanked on either side by two incredible artists. First off, Jock. What is there to say about how good Jock is as an artist? His art is instantly identifiable. He has a style all his own that I have never in any, in all my years as a comic book fan, I've never seen anyone whose style even remotely resembles what Jock brings to the table. And along that same line, Francesco Francavilla, or Francavilla, however you want to pronounce it, um, is incredible. 
He harkens back to a different kind of style, a style that I really enjoy, the Mazzicellis, the Ajas, this somewhat simplistic, almost cartoonish, cartoonish style that also has a huge amount of grit and character and finesse to it so that it is again instantly identifiable and you always know that it's going to be quality now scott snyder partnered up with both of these artists over the course of this story uh, from two very different perspectives and they of course met in the middle a little bit while later and we'll talk about the art and we'll go a little bit more in depth about it but what i want to talk about first getting into this story is the premise now, this promised as a, you know, new Dick Grayson Batman story to be a Dick Grayson detective story. This was, I think, very recently after the return of Bruce Wayne, who kind of took the reins as the Batman of the world, while Dick Grayson was the Batman of Gotham. And with this, this brought on a whole new mess of challenges for Dick Grayson as Batman. You know, he had enough challenges before when he was trying to get a Gotham that had that was without a Batman for an extended period of time while also trying to wrangle this new Robin and Damian Wayne. And once Bruce came back and kind of established himself as the global Batman, now Dick Grayson not only had this shadow that he had kind of looming over him, now he had to prove that he was worthy to still carry the mantle once Bruce came back. And the synopsis for the story reads like this. For years, Batman and Commissioner Gordon have stared into the unyielding black abyss that is Gotham City. Time after time, they've saved their beloved city from itself, not allowing it to be swallowed by a pit of violence and corruption. But even after a crime-fighting lifetime of confronting what they thought was the worst humanity had to offer, an even darker and more dangerous evil pushes Batman and Gordon to their limits. As the conflict comes closer to its resolution, they find that the truth behind this murderous crime spree isn't just careening toward their doorstep. It has, in fact, emerged from it. Can two of Gotham's proudest protectors bring justice to this malevolent threat in Commissioner Gordon's most personal battle to date? Now, this tells you a lot while also telling you basically nothing. This really... Um, kind of gets to the heart of what I love about involving a character like Dick Grayson in the Detective Comics branch. Because for years, uh, specifically in the mid to late 2010s, Detective Comics was really framed around Jim Gordon, around his stories, around him dealing with the GCPD, around him dealing with certain characters that... Um, populated Batman's rogues gallery and when this story came to be when this story really kind of hit its stride uh, we got to see how much he would mesh with the Batman that um, was still trying to make something of himself uh, and the basic I would say backbone behind this story is Dick Grayson v Gotham dawn of Ju no um, this is the story of Dick Grayson learning to um, find his place in Gotham City which I think is a story that I would love to explore with all of the Robins that includes Stephanie Brown that includes uh, other Robins that we've seen Duke Thomas especially 
But this is a story that shows the clash of Dick Grayson versus Gotham, of nature versus nurture, of ideals, of this idea that Dick Grayson has always been this person who tries to see the best in people. He tries to see the best in any situation. He tries to see the best in the world, and he is forced to protect a city that constantly contradicts him. And not only does that make it a really interesting story in the idea that he is going to have to face some of the worst that Gotham City can throw at him, it also brings to light this idea that Dick Grayson may not be the protector that Gotham needs or requires. You know, Dick Grayson comes from a family of circus folk. He is someone who has uh, self has self-described itchy feet where he has to constantly be moving. That's why he, a lot of his uh, solo series take him to Bloodhaven or to Chicago or to all these other places places because Gotham City has always seemed too small a stage for him and now that he's kind of confined in this spot we have to see him grapple with the idea of Gotham City as his home he is currently you know living in this penthouse suite that he doesn't agree with but he knows that it would feel more natural than him staying in the manor um, this suite is also where he kind of started up his whole Batman um, career because he didn't feel right using the cave uh, in, once again, Grant Morrison's uh, Batman and Robin Reborn. But what I love about this is that he talks about this disconnect that he has with Gotham. Uh, there are moments in the story where he is flying above the city. He uses the uh, the Batplane a lot more than the Batmobile. He I don't believe he ever really uses the Batmobile in the story, maybe once or twice, but the majority of the time he's making use of other vehicles, most often the Batplane, where he remarks that he never really understood why Bruce would stick to the Batmobile, where if he used the Batplane or he chose to soar above Gotham, he would get a better perspective and he would be able to see things more clearly, at least at the beginning of the story is how Dick felt about it. But as the story progresses, he starts to come to terms with the fact that Bruce stayed on the ground because he knew that if he stayed too far above Gotham City, that it would continue to shift and change underneath him and that he wouldn't be able to impact the city the way that he could if he was part of it uh which i love this deconstruction of dick grayson versus bruce wayne their different approaches to being batman their different personas while under the mask under the cape and cowl and the idea of Dick Grayson pursuing this mystery, this classic Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne style mystery where uh, old paraphernalia of different rogues in Batman's um, various uh, villains gallery are going up and appearing in different places, most notably in the households of the richer families in Gotham. You know, the story starts out with this kid who um, is going to a private school. He has ingested something that essentially turns him into a little mini ki killer croc. Um, and as the story progresses, he, you know, makes use of this uh, forensic lab that during the kind of reconstruction of Wayne Enterprises as they went global and became Batman Incorporated, uh, they gifted 
quote-unquote, to the GCPD to show that, hey, we're still looking out for you guys too. And even though the GCPD, uh, as Jim Gordon puts it, is much too prideful to ever ask for help, uh, this does show... um, more or less a certain kinship, if not an uneasy alliance, between Dick Grayson and Jim Gordon. At the start of this story, the two of them could not could not be more formal with each other. Um, Dick Grayson at one point, you know, Jim is like, yeah, you know, Grayson, blah, 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 thanks for doing this. And he's like, please, like, call me Dick. Like, you drove me to my, you know, my junior prom. And, J- and Jim just goes, no, I drove my daughter. To junior prom you were in the car and it's this very like you know ex's dad kind of thing kind of uh, relationship that they had which is incredible and a very different dynamic than jim has with bruce and so we get to explore kind of dick grayson's approach to crime fighting we get to explore his uh method if you know if there is a word to use for it um, of solving this crime and as we start to go along we start to, we find out that there is this shady character called the dealer who is running this auction that is basically just pawning off old paraphernalia of different villains uh, at one point you know the one that really kind of comes to mind at least for me is the crowbar that killed Jason Todd they have this on display at this auction and as uh, Dick kind of goes undercover to infiltrate the auction, um, he's found out, he's discovered, and he has to fight against not just some of the richest folk in Gotham, but also against the dealer himself, who ends up using this kind of like, uh, the only thing I can kind of equate it to is this almost venom man bat hybrid thing that turns him into this monstrous creature as he's trying to escape Gotham. And we get to see, you know, Dick deal with the um, deal with the kind of things that Bruce would and how he deals with them differently. Like at a certain point during the uh, infiltration of the auction, all of the uh, members of the auction, all of the attendees are given gas masks to kind of protect them from this uh, scarecrow toxin that they've pumped into the room to just, I guess, secure the building. And it's revealed that when, um, when Dick Grayson, while undercover, was given his mask, his mask was tampered with and that it didn't filter out the toxins so that he had to, you know, experience all of these nightmares. And so he wakes up after, you know, trying to escape from these rabid, absolutely just, you know, chomping at the bit uh, Gotham socialites, he wakes up in a hospital room to find that both of his legs have been amputated. And Barbara Gordon's sitting by his side and she's like, you know, when we didn't get to you in time, when we got to you, they were eating your legs. And she says, you know, but it's lucky that we did because they left some of you for me. And she's like coming after him with a knife. And of course, it's all a scarecrow hallucination, but he has to deal with that for the rest of the story, just the residual effects of that toxin. And I love that they take the time to really dive into it. Because if Bruce Wayne was in a similar situation, he would, you know, jump right into, okay, I got to develop an antitoxin, I got to do this, I got to, you know, solve this. But Dick is more focused on the job at hand. He's more focused on solving the crime rather than helping himself, which I love because not only does it 
pretty easily draw the line in the sand between the two characters and their approach to being Batman, but also provides uh, some continuity through the story and gives Dick Grayson another uh, obstacle that he has to overcome over the course of the story. At the same time, we get our secondary protagonist, Jim Gordon. Uh, Jim is dealing with a lot. At this point, um, the the kind of infrastructure, the um, the picture of Gotham has changed with the death, return, and revitalization of Bruce Wayne's version of Batman. And though it's never really established whether uh, Jim knew that Bruce Wayne was under the cape and cowl during his years as Batman, um, Jim is dealing with how much Gotham has changed, and that is compounded upon by the return of his son, James Gordon Jr., who up until this point you know, with sporadic exceptions here and there, we really hadn't heard or seen anything about him since Batman Year One. That was the last time that any big focus was placed upon him. And not only does this story uh, take into account that story within its own canon, but it shows the consequences of that story. If you're not familiar, if you haven't read Batman Year One, which, come on, come on, Batman Year One, come on, um... At the end of that story, baby uh, James Gordon Jr. is dropped off of a bridge. And though um, Bruce, is, Bruce is able to catch him and um, cushion the landing on the, uh, on the shore below, it's kind of implied that this resulted in some kind of um, brain damage or um, mental instability in him. And as we get more info, we get, you know, the uh, backstory on the years that followed that. As we know, you know, Bat or uh, Jim's first wife, Barbara Sr., had... Um, had, uh, sorry, uh, had James, this whole thing happened. I believe that she had Barbara as well. And then they divorced and Jim entered into a marriage with Sarah Essen, who was later killed by the Joker. So, um, we get to see this look into Jim Gordon's life, into his personal life and all of the years that followed, you know, Batman year one and preceded this story where we get to see that the effects of that fall really did a number on James. And though Barbara more or less grew up to be a, you know, fairly well-adjusted individual, James was not. Uh, he grew up very much in um, isolation to himself. He grew up as a quiet, uh, very disconnected child. And as we go along with the story through flashbacks and other uh, recountings from, you know, Barbara and James, uh, we see that he has all the signs of a kid of a child psychopath, of someone who would grow up to do harm to others. And while James, you know, popping on the scene and basically telling Jim like, Hey, I've changed. I'm taking this medication that is allowing, you know, me to become normal. Um, I'm going to go work with Leslie Tompkins at the, uh, at her clinic. We get to, we get this uneasy feeling alongside Jim that there are things that, um, 
may not be quite right. Uh, Barbara is immediately skeptical. This is Oracle version of Barbara, my personal favorite version of Barbara Gordon, uh, who is basically telling her dad, like, he hasn't changed. Like, I don't know what kind of show that he's putting on for you, but he, you know, my little brother is a psychopath, and I, you know, I can't believe that people are giving him another chance. And so we get to see Jim struggle with it. We get to see him struggle with the... Uh, preconceived notions of who James used to be, who James could be, and also, and just as equally, who James actually is. And what I love about this story, you know, not just with James's story, but with the entire Black Mirror arc uh, in general, is there is a big focus on family ties. We get a lot of family uh, drama between Barbara, James, and Jim. We also get to see this new kind of bat family that's established in Gotham. You know, Dick is working with Tim, who is in his Red Robin persona, my personal favorite version of Tim. Um, and the two of them, it's always great to see the dynamic duo working together. Uh, it's, it's you know, I've got a special place in my heart for the Dick Batman, Damian Robin pairing that will always be, you know, my Batman and Robin, but I absolutely adore Tim Drake as a character and seeing these two fully fleshed former Robins being able to work alongside each other, not as, you know, hero and sidekick, but as equal partners is always a super great time. Uh, we also get to see, you know, the follow-up to the initial, um, to the initial mystery with another mystery. We get to see Dick Grayson tackle his second mystery in the story, which is the story of Sonia Branch, or as she was formerly called, Sonia Zuko. That's right. Sonia is the daughter of Tony Fats Zuko, the man who killed or was responsible for the death of uh, Dick Grayson's parents. And we get to see the you know, the idea of legacy. We get to see the, um, and this is a concept that is kind of, I would say, woven in throughout the story. Um, this idea of legacy, this idea of who you were doesn't define who you are. Uh, this, once again, you know, this focus on nature versus nurture, who you are versus who uh, you're brought up to be. And Though Sonia has worked very hard to establish herself as a um, as a businesswoman on the straight and narrow, mostly as the head of this really well-established uh, bank in Gotham, we get to see that she might be more involved with some of the underpinnings or the uh, shady dealings going on within Gotham City and. Getting to see Dick Grayson as Batman facing down Sonya Branch, also known as for, as uh, Sonya Zuko, during the course of this mystery is really interesting. We get to see that uh, during a you know during a normal evening, there is an orca that is just plopped right in the middle of her um, of her bank's lobby and cutting into the orca they find the body of her dead assistant evelyn and as we get to um as we get as we go along this mystery as we kind of follow it down the rabbit hole we see that sonia was embroiled with two specific um members of the uh of the underworld in gotham first the roadrunner this character the shady character who has these bionic legs uh who batman goes after and 
is able to put behind bars, if only temporarily, uh, but also the international criminal Tiger Shark. And as we come to find out, Tiger Shark was the one responsible for uh, the murder of uh, Sonia's assistant Evelyn. But the feed that was supposed to be going on inside the building was cut by Sonya so that Batman wouldn't go straight after Tiger Shark, but would instead take out both Roadrunner and Tiger Shark to get them off of her back. And it's this really interesting multi-layered story where we get to see um, this kind of weird uh, relationship brewing between uh, this new Batman and this new... um, I don't want to call her uh, a queen pin just yet, but she does seem to be very well connected within Gotham's underbelly. And she even makes a good point. She's like, you know, because essentially her plan was to get both of them off the board because they were trying to extort her. And she said, what's the problem here? Like, yeah, I directed you to Roadrunner first, but you got to put, you know, you got to put a known criminal behind bars and got to run another off out of the country. Like I'm helping you. I'm doing your job for you. And it's just a really interesting moral gray area that we get to play in, which is not traditionally what Dick Grayson is used to being in. Sure. There's a moral gray area when it comes to vigilantism as a whole, but as Nightwing and, even as Robin, you know, he got to deal with a lot more cut and dry kind of heroes versus villains kinds of stories. And now in this much more complicated role in Bat in Batman, he gets to experience these moral grays, these ambiguities, these ambiguities, sorry, um, these um, not easily answerable um, problems, which I really adore. And there's this great, uh, let me thumb through this real quick. I've got the book right next to me. There's this great um, interaction that he has with Sonya at the uh, at the end of all this where here we where are we here? Um, oh, here we go. And so uh, basically like um, he says da, 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 uh Okay, Sonia says, the law, you're going to stand there trespassing on my property in a mask and cape and talk to me about the law. Man, I need a drink. He says, you tampered with evidence and redirected the investigation. It's arguable that her killer, Tiger Shark, escaped because you wasted time by sending me after Rhodes first. And she says, true. Then again, it's arguable that her killer, Tiger Shark, escaped because you failed to catch him. Isn't it, Batman? He says, you say tomato, I say you're culpable. She says, we'll have to agree to disagree, won't we then? Good night, Batman. And he says, good night, Ms. Zuko. And she says, it's Ms. Branch. And he says, that's what I said. Which is the only kind of thing, which you can only get from the Dick Grayson sass. That is not something that Bruce Wayne as Batman would give. But that exchange is just so good because he knows it bothers her. He knows she's embarrassed by her her parentage and so kind of the only win that he can really get out of her in this scenario is to basically give her a cheap shot and be like yeah you know screw you you're still a zuko and just kind of like goes off into the night but i really dig it and as we would see as uh, his tenure as batman and later as nightwing went on he would eventually develop a closer relationship to sonya which is a relationship that i would love to see um revisited someday uh there's a lot of narrative potential with that but 
We also get to see, for just a brief moment, the two stories kind of intersect. Because um, Jim asks uh, Dick in their human or their human their civilian identities to check on james to see if he's changed because the two of them knew each other when they were younger they were roughly you know the same age give or take a few years and so dick got to see firsthand you know james as a child and got to see him you know growing up and how you know it would be able to judge i think correctly on how he is so the two of them have this you know they run into each other they have this little coffee date which is nice this momentary passing uh where they talk about you know oh you know i've been good how have things been for you and he's you know james references this um this guy who's who used to bully him and he's like oh you know i just i ran into him the other day and dick's like oh yeah really and he's like yeah he's you know some kind of uh, big investor now and they you know shake hands and they part and then we follow james and we see james show up to this guy's um this guy's house you know he checks the mail he goes inside it's very clearly the guy's last name and he goes into the basement and we see the guy that they were talking about the guy who used to bully him when they were kids and he is gruesomely chopped into pieces his legs and arms are scattered along the floor and his body is just kind of being hung up by wires and chains and his jaw has been removed and james is like oh you wouldn't believe who i just ran into you know it's it's dick you remember him right and the guy's like please stop like just his jaw has been removed he is just just this it's inhumane what he did to him and you see james just pull out this hacksaw he's like now where were we and we just continue on and this hannibal lecter style character is so freaking cool and making him a gordon you know really diving into the horror aspect is something that this story does incredibly well and it also fulfills that promise with the return of the joker now the joker at this point has gone through a bit of a metamorphosis as he do where uh following the death of the original batman during the story of um of batman r.i.p he was shot in the head by a false batman then he was you know exiled then during the grant morrison run he was this other character who revealed himself um the joker was in a weird place he's currently as of this story uh locked up in arkham and he is able to escape by use of this joker toxin that is secreting through his pores and it's very interesting because once we get to this um this point in the story we know that james is a threat we know that he is going after them for some reason but joker is a threat unto himself and he is something that needs immediate attention so when they are you know basically having to go after the joker and they realize oh you know the toxin that was you know that he was using had to have been given to him there's no way he would have acquired it you know through you know and was given enough of it to secrete it through his pores to make him almost venomous to the touch we don't there has to be another player involved and then jim immediately phones uh barbara senior who's staying in this hotel in gotham she's visiting and he's like you need to get out of there like 
you know, it's not safe. And she's like, what are you talking about? She, and he basically, he, he's reminded of the fact that the Joker killed Sarah Essen and he thinks that the Joker is coming after her next. And so, you know, he's like, you know, there's, I've sent a police escort. They're going to, you know, take you somewhere safe. And she gets a knock at the door and she's like, Oh, that must be them right now. And she opens the door. She's like, Oh, what are you? And then you hear a crash and a click and Jim, you know, races over to the hotel. He gets up to her room and finds her in the bathtub in this horrific scene, her just infected with the Joker toxin and just bleeding through her eyes, through her mouth. And they're fortunately able to, um, successfully, you know, get her into a, um, I would say like a medically induced coma, able to stabilize her. But as they, you know, come to find out, you know, oh, this is an older version of the toxin. This is a version that we haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, meanwhile, Batman is on the hunt. He goes after, um, goes after Joker, is able to find him in the in one of his old hiding spots in this, you know, um, I want to say it's like in these catacombs. And the two of them battle. And it, I love this exchange because Joker is like, you're not my bat. Like, I know. I know you under there. You're not my bat. You're a bird. And he keys in immediately that this is a former Robin. Um, and the two of them just go back and forth and they're like battling and... Uh, Batman is basically like, why are you going after the Gordons? What are you doing? And Joker's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like my bat would know that that's not me. Like blah, blah, blah. As they're going through this, wait a second. Like this is an older version of the Joker toxin. You probably acquired through the old, you know, through the auctions done by the dealer. And Barbara is in her tower in, in the cord needle um, going through the video surveillance of Barbara Sr.'s hotel, and she sees, you know, the figure coming, you know, up the elevator, and he's like, oh, we got you, we got you, and as soon as she's able to finally, like, make out who it is, she realizes it's James, and at that exact moment, James shows up behind her and knocks her unconscious, and so it's revealed that James was the one that infected Barbara, he was the one who, you know, was a was responsible for giving the toxin or, or basically paying off some Arkham guards to feed the toxin to Joker. And we the stage is set for a final showdown. Uh, Jim contacts Batman. He's like, he's got Barbara. Like, we need to move. We don't know what's going on. And uh, meanwhile, we get this scene of um, James and Barbara. But before we get into it, I want to... Real quick, I mentioned it before, I want to put a spotlight on the art, because the art is stunning. First off with Jock, Jock takes the reins for all of the um, Dick Grayson POV stories, while uh, Francesco Francovia takes the um, POV, takes the Jim POV stories. And what Jock does so well is body horror is the is this varying perspective uh giving this really gritty grimy kind of art style that immediately sets itself apart from other parts of the story and what jock does incredibly well over the course of this whether it's the 
scarecrow hallucinations, whether it's the body horror, whether it's the Joker toxin effect on its victims, is this unraveling horror. As the book progresses, it gets darker and more horrific and more body, and we get to see more body horror. And it is incredible watching him, you know, play with all of these different, um, all of these different strands, all these different strings along the story. Well, also striking Batman is this very heroic silhouette. He he just like a lot of the characters in the story almost comes across as this mythical creature when it's from the perspective of other characters, but when it's from his perspective, him jumping between rooftops, him suiting up, even the moments when he's alone with Alfred, he strikes this very uh, heroic figure, if not this worn down heroic figure as someone who is dealing with the weight of a role that he in a lot of you know in many respects didn't want or didn't need and so i love to see him you know playing with this idea of the of gotham being this as james mentions during his monologue to um to dick later on this city of nightmares and that's exactly what jock brings he makes gotham feel like a city of nightmares where you could turn uh any corner at any given time of the night and see something you know straight out of an eldritch horror you know i love jock's uh art style i love his very unique way um very unique um uh, his own unique take on perspective like you get angles from characters that you wouldn't see from other artists and i love that his Essentially, his narrative through line and his art is showing the more horrific takes on this story, while Frank Avia's art is very specifically tying itself to Jim's need to cling to the past, to the old days. He talks about more, you know, more than once over the course of the story, how much he longs for simpler times, how much he longs for the simplicity of, you know, him just fighting criminals. Um, uh, and as we get through the flashbacks as well, him trying to reconcile the idea that this kid who is who bears his own name and was his firstborn may be a psychopath and may be, in fact, a serial killer. And this clinging to the past for the two of them really um, is accentuated through the art, which again is more of a, I would say, classical style, a more, um, I mentioned it before, a more akin to like a Mazzucchelli, where they're very clean lines, they're very dynamic. But what I love about Frank Avia, um, and this goes for, I would say pretty much any of the stories that his art is uh, specifically featured in is his use of uh, color and framing. His framing is, God, it's second to none. And I have, I do have to give um, some props to, I believe David Barron did the coloring for a lot of jock stuff. And I believe that he contributed some to the uh, Frank Avia art, but Frank Avia is very much known for his colors as much as he is his art. And watching his, you know, his playing dynamic with the noir style of color, you know, washing over a... Um, a scene, you know, a crime scene that has, you know, is covered in blood with reds and oranges and yellows, really giving it this neo-noir style is incredible. And again, sets itself very plainly apart from, um, 
from Jock's art. So the two of them are coming together, you know, telling two very different stories that by the time that Barbara has been abducted, get to come together. And there's this almost flash point of the two of them, not that one, where the two arts cross paths. And during the climax of this story, they're almost trading pages. You know, Jock will you know, take a specific uh, perspective from one character. The next page will be Frank Avia's art. And it's so ridiculously um, well done how they bounce back and forth between those two perspectives, both with the characters as well as the art, that I had to talk about it. It's incredible. The way that the uh, collection, I would absolutely recommend, if you want to pick up the single issues, if you're able to pick up the single issues, go for it. But the collected edition does such a great job of making sure that the two very different tones from each artist are established. And as the uh, two stories start to narrow and start to become one the art starts to blend into each other but in a way that we see this almost clash of ideals this clash of once again nature versus nurture the idea that dick grayson is the man who he is because of his upbringing while james is arguably who he you know the serial killer psychopath who he is because of an imbalance in his brain and watching the two of them you know kind of um have this really fun uh this really fun verbal tete-a-tete uh, is just incredible. And it sets up James Gordon Jr. to be a Joker-level villain for uh, for Dick Grayson. I believe that was, you know, and I don't have any basis of this, you know, besides just my own opinion and my own experience reading the books. But I believe that that was the intent, was to give him a character that could be his joker could be on that level and that's not just because he is this you know murderous psychopath who is going after the people that dick grayson loves but because he has a connection to dick and he knows that dick is under the mask so the two of them have this conversation while uh James has Barbara um, basically kidnapped and as he reveals to her has two big old knives stabbed into her legs and because she's paralyzed she didn't know that but the moment that the uh, knives are pulled because they're in a specific artery in her leg she will bleed to death within minutes and so there's this ticking clock going on where the two of them uh, Barbara and James rather they discuss all of the um, all of the moments that the two of them really got to see each other for who they are, and the moment that sticks out, the moment that gets the most play in the story is the incident with Bess. Bess was a childhood friend of um, of Barbara's. The two of them shared this uh, science kit where. Barbara always kept the actual kit, while Bess kept the uh, the keychain that was in the shape of a bat with the key, so that they could only use the science kit together. And upon meeting her, this you know James was coming to meet Barbara, or was coming to stay with Barbara and Jim for a summer. And uh, he meets Bess, and she's very creeped out by him because even as a child, he's very off-putting. Um, and Bess, you know, makes some comments, some unflattering comments, some rude comments about how different he is and how much he creeps her out. And then as we come to see, you know, the next, you know, 
that evening, or I believe maybe the next day, uh, on her way home, Bess went missing, walking home from the Gordon residence to her own residence. And when uh, this was brought up to... um, Basically, you know, they went out, they tried to find her, they couldn't find her, and at the end of the day, um, Barbara suspected it was it was James. And Jim, you know, comes to him at the end of the day, and James is like, oh, did you find her? And he's like, no, we didn't. He's like, oh, that's too bad. And then Jim notices that James has Barbara's science kit, and it's open. And he's like, how did you get in there? And... James just kind of looks up at him. He's like, what do you mean? I just used a regular old knife. And there's just, oh, there's so much subtext. There's so much ambiguity. Um, But near the end of the story, when Jim finally realizes what has happened, he goes and infiltrates um, James's, you know, apartment where he's staying or his hotel where he's staying. And he finds this box. And as he opens it up, he sees that it's a box of keys of different people who he's murdered and taken residence in as we saw with that old um, childhood bully and on top of these keys is the key with the bat keychain confirming that he was responsible for killing Bess when they were kids and it's just Oh, it's so incredible. The tension that they have throughout the story building up because they introduce the Bess story probably about halfway through Um, and as the story goes on, you get these lingering thoughts here and there until it's finally confirmed that yes, he did something. And the, um, the ratcheting up of tension is so masterfully done. Uh, and they also, you know, they talk about, you know, how the fact that, uh, James had a history of violence growing up, you know, Barbara says it when, you know, initially talking to Jim about him coming back to town. She's like, yeah, nothing was ever proven. He just happened to coincidentally be places where bad things happened every single time they happened and we get this conversation between them where you know she mentions that every time someone would bully him something would happen there was an incident with a bus driver you know and it wouldn't be right away but things would happen and he got seemingly better at it as he grew up and it's terrifying to think that this this kid was doing this. But as we come to find out um, during this conversation, uh, Dick is tracking him. He, during the... um during the little meeting that they had um, where they shook hands, when they shook hands, he planted a, uh, or I guess he injected him with some kind of tracer so that he could follow him in case he needed to. And he makes this great comment when he eventually does find them that, you know, he's like, I try to see the best in people, but that doesn't mean I'm stupid. And so um, we also find out that over the course of this, that the medication that he was taking, the medication that, you know, James was seemingly taking to balance out his um, his uh, mental instability, he had uh, reverse engineered. And he was using during his uh, employment at Leslie Tompkins Clinic because they made regular runs to a nearby baby formula plant. And so apparently James's plan all along was to put the put this new medication that would not suppress the um, psychopathic tendencies, but would in fact enhance them and accentuate them into baby formula. So, uh, and we have no idea and it's never, you know, 
explicitly um, explained at what point he started doing this, whether he even got to do any of this, whether he's been doing it for a long while. Um, But it is incredibly unsettling that he would want to make more people like him. And it's, oh man, it's, it's chilling. But during the conversation where, um, where uh, James and Batman are kind of talking to each other, James reveals that he genuinely was, you know, being treated by this medication, that he was at this, you know, like a halfway house or something where he was getting treated and it was helping, but he started to feel lost. He started to feel like, you know, is this the only place I'm ever going to, you know, be able to exist because I'm so alone in the world. And then he sees this report, this report from when Dick Grayson first, you know, returned as Batman. And he knew immediately that it was Dick Grayson under there. He knew immediately that Dick Grayson was the Batman and that the two of them were now going to be set on a collision course. And so Dick Grayson is in fact the reason that James came back to Gotham. And he reveals his plan. He's like, I'm going to kill Barbara. Then I'm going to kill Jim, and then I'm going to leave Gotham. And I want, and I'm doing this because I want to break you. The old Batman, he wouldn't be broken by this, but you, you care about people, and that's your weakness. And I'm going to prove it. Uh, luckily, you know, there's, you know, Dick Grayson is able to get there in time because there's this incredible sequence where Barbara is able to momentarily escape. You know. James pulls one of the knives out of her legs and she just starts gushing blood. But as James gets more engrossed in the conversation with Dick, he turns around and she's gone. And so she was able to like wheel herself away. And it's revealed that when um, James is coming after her very much in that horror uh, film style where he's stalking her through the hallways of this abandoned warehouse, um, Barbara is able to surprise him by pulling the other knife out of her leg and stabbing it into his eye. And there's this great moment where um, where she's like stabbed him in the eye. He's laying, you know, motionless on the floor. And James just kind of like looks, you know, turns his head. And he's like, you really shouldn't have done that. And there's this, oh, it's so, it's so unsettling. And I love it so much. Um, just looking at it right now, again, Jock incredible stuff and he's you know he you know turns his head he's still alive he's like oh you shouldn't have done that sis you could have just told me you wanted to play tag i like this game too here i come to get you and she's you know through trying to stab him knocked herself out of her wheelchair so she's dragging herself along the floor to get away from him her legs just bleeding out and he's like i'm getting closer and closer and closer and i've got you and then you hear from behind him can i play too batman finally just in the nick of time gets on the scene the two of them you know scuffle for a moment but of course james isn't a trained fighter like dick is so he's able to knock him out basically with one punch um Dick rescues Barbara, is able to use his gadgets to cauterize both the wounds on her legs, while uh, Jim, or while James tries to escape. He's able to escape up onto a scaffolding and is really about to basically escape to freedom when he gets shot through both of his legs by Jim. Jim has tracked him down. Jim is going to bring his son to justice, and James, trying to escape him, tries to fall off of the scaffolding where Jim catches his arm 
and he says he basically says not this time james i'm not letting you go never again and we get this great little parallel because really all of this started because james took a fall and jim wasn't able to catch him and so the ah the narrative parallels it's so good it's so freaking good i love it so much um and the way that this is all able to kind of wrap up with the two um our two leads basically um coming together one last time in the same way that they meet each other at the beginning of the story with jim uh coming to the forensics lab that grayson is working on and he's kind of like breaking things down and you know, Gordon's like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry this place is going to go. And Dick's like, well, you know, like you said, the GCPD isn't using it and it's just kind of taking up space. So we figured we'd break this down. The two of them, you know, have this really nice moment where Jim says, you know, I, I want to say thank you. And Dick's like, of course, you know, is the least we could do, you know, talking about the forensics lab. And he says, no, I want to thank you on all fronts. And there's this understanding that Jim knows that Dick is Batman. He knows. He may not know that Bruce Wayne was Batman before, but he knows that this Batman is Dick Grayson. And it, you know, really marks the beginning of something new. A new relationship between Batman and Commissioner Gordon. A new relationship between Dick and Jim. And really the new kind of status quo going into what Gotham would be going forward. Unfortunately, of course, um, with the events of Flashpoint and New 52 and whatnot, uh, this would change, but it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible, I would say, first chapter to a story and a new friendship and a uh, recontextualized friendship between the two men. And of course, you know, the two of them, you know, have this conversation talking about, you know, the city, of Gotham, you know, he talks about. They talk about you know James's plot to try to infect the uh, baby formula with his medication, um, and he says, you know, if he, if he did taint the for he says he, if he did taint the formula with the drug he cooked up by basically inverting the dioxamine reaction, he did it long ago, like he said, long ago enough for any real trace of the stuff to be gone from the vats as they stand now. And Gordon says, so whether he infected hundreds, maybe thousands of infants with a drug that could help them grow up to be sociopaths, whether or not he did that at all, we don't know. And the two of them, like, you know, as they have to kind of come to an understanding that, like, it's uncomfortable, but we don't, we really don't know. And, you know, they have this conversation as, you know, it kind of pans down at the end where they're saying, you know, we're both here for the long haul. Well, then all that's left to do is hang up our hats, belly up to the bar, and be ready for what comes next. And it gives this really um, ambiguous shot at this baby. And it's, you know, you don't know if the next generation of um, of Gothamites are going to be, you know, infected by this, whether he was able to get anything done at all. And I love the ambiguity of it. It's fantastic. And the conversation that they have about Dick finally coming to terms with the city, finally coming to terms with his role as Batman, and finally coming to terms really with himself is an incredible story at the same time as Jim is coming to this realization that his past isn't as rose-tinted as he was like to would like to believe and that he has to see things as they are not as he wants them to be and the two of them making that journey together over the course of the story is beautiful in my opinion um so in conclusion it is one of the 
best Batman stories I've ever read. It's one of my favorites, absolutely top five. Um, it might be my favorite. I don't know. I one day I'll I'll have to do a full on like my favorite Batman stories, but. And it shows that, you know, Dick Grayson is this character who can play many roles. And it shows just what you can do with the character when given the right creative team. Which makes me really excited that next month, as of this recording, we are getting a brand new Nightwing ongoing series. Uh, more or less continuing on from the last one, but it feels like the birth of a new era. Tom Taylor, probably my favorite writer currently in comics right now alongside his um his trusted confidant his uh partner in crime bruno redondo are giving are breathing new life into nightwing into dick grayson they're promising to tell stories that are both uh, new reader friendly as well as hearkening back through every age of nightwing they're promising a take that will be sticking with the character for a long time which i like i hope that they get a big long run with the character because he needs it he needs a defining run in this new you know post-New 52, post-Rebirth uh, era, where we get this, you know, this look at who Dick Grayson is. Dick Grayson is on the rise in a way that he has been in the past, but w with all of his kind of start-stop pushes, I'm really excited for what this uh, for what this new age has in store. And if they take anything from this story, if they take anything, you know, marginally from the interpretation of Dick Grayson as someone who is, as we said, you know, sees the best in people, but he's not stupid, I think will be in very good hands. You do need to read the story. You should go read the story. If you haven't read it in a while, reread it. It's incredible. It says so much about Jim Gordon. It says so much about Dick Grayson as a person. It says so much about Gotham. You know, they have this story. Let me pull up the excerpt here as we're rounding things out you know dick grayson says um commissioner this past year here in gotham i've seen some of the most horrific things in my life there are times it almost feels like the city knows your greatest fears knows your nightmares i know and here today alone here in this room i'll tell you that i think maybe that's why i've avoided putting down roots here in gotham all these years maybe deep down i knew how vicious how cruel the city could be the thing is being here now, on the other side of all the terrible things that happened this year, I know that this is where I need to be, where I want to be, because I know, like you do, that if you make it through Gotham's trials, you can stand up to the monsters it throws at you. You come out redeemed, a stronger version of yourself. And what I love about this story is the thing that I love about any Batman story about any story involving Gotham and the concept of Gotham in itself is that yes absolutely throughout its decades-long history um, Gotham City in many ways can be described and really has been shown to be a full-on city of nightmares but it doesn't have to be Sparky too.
It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we're reviewing episode number seven of WandaVision. WandaVision, one WandaVision. Did you like that uh, that little intercut with one of my favorite new songs of all time? Oh man, this was a fantastic episode. I don't think I liked it as much as the previous episode, but... Oh my god, that does not mean in any respect that this was a bad episode at all. Because this episode continues to build upon the ever-growing and ever, you know, twisting story that is WandaVision. Um, But what I love so much is that this, like previous episodes, uh, especially the most recent, did a great job in balancing out the two narratives, both the outside of the dome as well as inside of the dome. Or the hex, pardon me. It's the hex now, officially. Uh, inside of the hex, we got to see the uh, sitcoms move into the 2010s. We got to see uh, very much uh, Modern Family slash The Office vibes, um, and... It, it was just, it was funny getting to see this uh, very clearly modern family. Um, but the theme song was so The Office that I just, I love it. I love it so much. Um, and I've seen online that a lot of people were not a fan of this episode with the, um, with people saying that the sitcom stuff was boring and they didn't really like it. And I don't know if that's specifically a criticism of this episode or maybe if it's a criticism of today's sitcoms. But hey, who knows? The world may never know. Um, one thing I really did like about this, um, about the setting, having these modern uh, commercials was the... Uh, or this, these modern uh, sitcoms, was the commercial. The commercial here continues on the path of the uh, previous commercials, really diving into kind of the understory going on beneath the surface here. And this one's a little bit less ambiguous than the previous one. I did, you know, listen to some reviewers, did some research. A lot of people were talking about how um, this seems to be you know, last week's episode with the Yo Magic seemed to be um, referencing Vision and how the shark is probably, you know, some kind of manifestation of whether it's Mephisto or some kind of other um, evil person giving, you know, Wanda essentially the push to use her magic to uh, to essentially revive the Vision because, you know, without magic, he's a corpse and Whatever. But this one was a little bit less ambiguous, which I liked. Uh, because this was for a for some kind of supplement called Nexus. And if you aren't familiar, in Marvel Comics, Nexus is the kind of um, is the cross paths between realities. The Nexus is this space within the Marvel multiverse where multiple reality where there's essentially doorways to multiple uh, realities. Also, previously in comics like um, Avengers Children's Crusade and others, Wanda has been um, classified as a nexus being, someone who can uh, play with the concept of reality, can shape it to her will. However, 
uh, much control she has on it or whatever. So I really liked the reality implications of this, that they are delving into the multiverse stuff, because as we know, uh, Wanda's next, we're not going to see Wanda again until Multiverse of Madness. So I'm glad that they are shifting the story to like really give us where she's going to go next with this. Um, and I think it also plays a little bit into something later that we're going to talk about. But uh, we see that after the events of the cliffhanger from last week's episode, uh, the hex has expanded. The initial, um, I guess, perimeter base that S.W.O.R.D. had set up uh, to monitor the hex has now been turned into a circus. Um, and it seems like Wanda's starting to lose control, whether the hex has just gotten too big for her to uh, control. Because we saw as the... Um, in previous episodes, especially last episode, that the further away from Wanda as this nexus point, um, the less things were moving, the less things were in control, people were freezing, glitching, that kind of thing. So uh, within Wanda's own house in this episode, things were glitching out, turning into other things, and she seems to be losing control of that reality. Meanwhile, Vision wakes up, having been saved by being re-consumed by the nexus, or... Ah, it's got me already. Uh, having been uh, reconsumed by the Hex, he wakes up in this circus area and runs into Darcy, who he awakens, and the two of them uh, escape the uh, escape the church in very office-style shenanigans um, and are having a hard time getting back because, like, they st- they hit every red light trying to drive this uh, this RV back into town and like the last one they hit as soon as it turns green this like construction crew moves into the intersection blocking them from their path so it's like it's presented to us as like unconsciously Wanda is trying to keep him from getting home but I think I think something might be uh, might be in play something other than Wanda here and outside of the dome, we get to see the continuation of Monica and Jimmy Woo. So as we are progressing on with them, the last we heard from them from last episode, they're going to see this aerospace engineer, which a lot of people were theorizing. Could it be Reed Richards? Could it be the Beast? Could it be any other of, you know, the myriad of... Uh, um, of space engineers that are at the disposal of Marvel Comics, but... They mentioned that the project that was um, trying to rebuild Vision uh, was something called Project Cataract. Now, I am not familiar with anything called Project Cataract in the comics, so this might be it kind of like being, uh, being like a, uh, what do you call it, like a, a code name, a pass, a red herring on what it could be, and that it might be, you know, the Sentinels or like whatever, but. Um, I will say I was a little disappointed that when they show up, their aerospace engineer wasn't anyone that we knew. Um, it's not confirmed that the uh, person that she talks to is that aerospace engineer. They just seem to be a cell of sword that is still loyal to Monica. But I'm kind of hoping that we get more from this mysterious aerospace engineer and that it wasn't this person because I don't know this person. This doesn't do anything for me. Whatever. Um, but we find that Hayward was trying to rebuild the Vision for some reason. Now, whether this harkens back to Vision Quest in the comics or anything like that, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back a couple episodes to our Geek Explained Vision and Wanda episode uh, for more information on that. But 
What I was not disappointed by was the sequence of events once they got to this uh, this forward station. They roll out this big space rover, which theoretically, on paper, should be able to get uh, Monica through the hex without rewriting her or changing her in any way so that she's able to be conscious and get to Wanda. But as they drive into the, as she tries to drive it into the hex, it fights back. It bursts back against her, shifting its density, maybe taking some cues from vision, who knows. But Monica, you know, scrambles to get out of the, um, out of this big, uh, uh, space rover before it gets basically halfway turned into like an old school truck and then is launched backwards out you know outside of the perimeter and uh, Monica kind of like strips off her you know her protective space suit very much looking like a very familiar costume she had in the comics I, I love this costume team I love this costume team whoever you are you know I just I love you so much you were doing Mwah! Just chef's kiss work in this show. Um, But Monica just decides to run into the hex, just breaks the barrier, goes in, and we see her basically being torn apart. The hex is trying to rewrite her as she's making her way through the, um, basically between realities. And we get to see the different versions of her that were in previous episodes. And accompanied with that are quotes you know memories echoes of things said to her and then she hears this um this line from carol danvers about how lucky her mom was to have her and we see her eyes light up and she bursts through into westview and she's got her spectrum powers she bursts through immediately she gets in and she sees all of these different fluctuations in in the um in the uv spectrum in the light and i was oh i was jumping out of my seat she's spectrum officially um and she makes her way into westview she's able to confront wanda while um, uh, Agnes is taking care of uh, Billy and Tommy in uh, at her house, and the two of them have this argument, you know, two of them have a, a, a little bit of a scuffle, not a huge throwdown, but a little bit of a scuffle. Um, while Vision with Darcy decides, wait, why am I just writing in this? I can fly, and he just phases out and he flies back towards Westview. Um, the two of them have a bit of a throwdown where Wanda is, you know, tries to just fling her out and crush her, but you know, uh, Monica is able to balance herself out and cushion her fall using her powers. And we're about to have a full blown superpower beat down when um, Agnes shows up and she takes Wanda and she's like, "I think it's time for you to go to Monica," and she just takes Wanda to her house. And she's, like, trying to calm Wanda down, and she's in her kitchen, and she's just like, you know, blah, 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 like, you're fine, you just need to let that stuff go. And Wanda looks, and she sees these empty plates and these empty cups from, presumably, Billy and Tommy. And she's like, have you have you seen the kids? They were with you, right? And Agnes is like, yeah, they're probably, um, they're probably downstairs in the basement. And so Wanda makes her way down into the basement. And as she starts to go down, um, we get to see this very uh, picturesque house further down into this basement become closer and closer looking to the dungeons of a castle. Very much giving me some Mount Wendigore vibes, which would become very relevant in just a moment. Because as Wanda gets into this main chamber with many different doors 
almost a nexus, if you will, of these different doors, Agnes pops out. And she basically, like, says, you know, you thought you were the only magical girl in town? And she, like, uses her purple magic and she says, Agatha Harkness, nice to meet you. And it was Agatha! Agatha all along! I just, I've had that stuck in my head all week, and I just, I'm, I'm so happy that I get to share it with you here. But uh, we get this amazing little musical sequence where we see how Agatha was... Um, was influencing events of previous episodes. We get this hint that she was behind Pietro showing, or Pietro in quotations. Um, and it is teasing that we are going to get some major answers next episode. So I'm very excited about it. We also get a nice little mid credit scene where Monica has made her way to Agnes's, or I guess now Agatha's house, and is trying to find a way in. And she sees these cellar doors, and she pulls them open and finds this stairway, the stone stairway going into the dungeon area area pulsing with purple energy and as she kind of pulls back we see pietro or whoever he is standing next to her going snooper's gonna snoop and she whips around and her eyes light up and that's the end of the mid-credits scene so we might be getting a monica pietro throwdown next episode which i'm very excited about light powers versus someone who can move at the speed of light we're gonna get um starlight versus a train round two um if, in fact, this is Pietro, we we still don't know. So I'm really excited to get some answers finally going into next episode. We do know that these last two episodes are going to be um, longer than the typical runtime. I believe this next one is supposed to be either 40 or 45 minutes, and the last one should be an hour long. Um, I'm just really excited. Everything's come to a head here. I can't wait to see where this goes. We've got two episodes left. Ah! Very excited about this. So tune in next week for my review of episode eight. But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comiXology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we've got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And folks, there was a lot of books last week. (laughs) There were so many books! Um, And it really, for me, came down to two books specifically. Uh, The first was Future State Superman World of War, which almost got the pick. Um, I absolutely, what I love about this is it really turned me around on the idea of Philip Kennedy Johnson writing Superman. He has this really just fantastic grasp on the character and it makes me excited for him to take the reins of the character going forward. You know, Really getting to the heart of why Superman works is because he's Clark Kent. Um, Just, I love it. I adore it. It's so good. Um, I also really, really enjoyed the the Mr. Miracle stuff, basically turning, revealing that the uh, mysterious signal that brought him to War World was in fact sent by himself and trapping him in a time loop. So I really dug that. The only thing that kept it from really becoming the pick of the week for me was honestly the fact that the other two stories weren't as strong in my opinion the midnighter and black racer storylines really um really didn't do it for me the black racer went nowhere from where i thought it was gonna go and the midnighter just um 
did the time loop thing, but not as well as as the Mr. Miracle story. So it ultimately came down to my pick being Thor number 12, written by Donny Cates, art by Nick Klein. Um, Continuing on from Donald Blake's... um, obsession his crusade to kill all of the former thors or as they call them the thor folk i think in this book uh he gets to throw down with throg man he fought throg and lockjaw together and i just i loved it i loved it so much the way that it started the issue with like a frog being dissected and almost being like oh shit like this is what happened to him i guess um and it basically being like you know he he fought valiantly which is what they would say whenever he falls and you see you know donald blake crash through this science lab and throg basically coming out like all right come here i'm not done with you yet it was just a great 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 story uh thor trying to fight his way out of this other realm to get to um to get back so he can fight donald blake and then the reveal at the end that we're getting us some more Odin. So we might get Odin versus Donald Blake. That could be really cool. But that's last week's books. Let's talk about this week. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books for you. So not as many as last week. It's starting to slow down as we knew it would near the end of this um, Future State run. But uh, very, very excited to talk about these books. Uh, this is pretty much the end of Future State. Following this, I think we might get one more Future State book, and then we're getting that um, that Infinite Frontier book. So looking forward to that, of course. So let's just go ahead and dive in. We'll be talking about each book's title, creative team, and brief synopses. And of course, the synopses will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. So starting this list off, we have Future State, Superman versus is Imperious Lex number two. This is written by Mark Russell with art by Steve Pugh. And honestly, I wasn't as impressed by this book as I thought I was going to be. Um, I really, you know, I thought that I was going to enjoy it more than I ended up enjoying it. And maybe, you know, maybe it'll be turned around. You know, Future State books have done that for me. You know, the uh, Superman Wonder Woman book just captured my heart with the second issue. So I'm hoping that it does the same for this. Let's just go ahead and dive into it. Part two. It's really happening. Luxor has joined the United Planets. While surveying, Lois Lane and Superman discover that the planet is rich in minerals, causing Lex Luthor to try and exit the Federation to make a pretty penny. Realizing he can't leave without agreement from Earth, he imprisons Lois Lane, then whips up the propaganda machine against Superman. Now the power couple must work together to break free and stop Luthor's plans. But how can they fight a whole planet that's designed to hate them? So this this is kind of getting into the stuff that I was hoping that the book would start off with, is the fight for Superman against Lex's propaganda. And I'm sure that they're going to really put their effort into this. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that it's better than the first issue, because again, I wasn't blown away by it. But a book that I was blown away by, or really rather a book that I've just been really enjoying, is uh, Future State Dark Detective number four. This is written by Mariko Tamaki, uh, Joshua Williamson, and I think that's it, with art by Dan Mora and Giannis Milo, Milano Giannis. Oh, every time, every time. Milano Giannis. I'm so sorry. 
Um, but this is continuing on and really concluding the stories that we saw as we do know uh, the Red Hood story that was kicked off in uh, the second issue and continuing here is going to be continued on into the uh, Future State Gotham anthology. But I'm hoping that, you know, this issue is as strong as some of the other issues that have kind of, you know, rounded out the stories here in Future State. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Dark Detective, Chapter 4, Finale, Slash, The Red Hood, Part 2, Run, Red Hood, Run. Bruce Wayne may be a dead man in the eyes of the villainous magistrate, but this Dark Detective isn't through yet. In this pulse-pounding finale, Bruce makes his final move and comes face-to-face with the man at the top of Gotham's oppressive regime, Peacekeeper Zero One. With bombs planted and the trap waiting to be sprung, this final battle will decide the fate of Gotham City once and for all. And, after the events of the last Red Hood chapter, Jason Todd is a wanted man. He got too close to the mystery of the new Red Hood gang, and that forced the magistrate to take extreme measures, because no one can know the truth. Hurt and alone, Jason must turn to some unlikely allies if he's going to survive. So yeah, I am digging this, the escalation of both of these stories, and I hope that they give us, if not a good finale, a reason for me to pick up that Future State Gotham book. Next up, we have Batman, or Batman White Knight Presents Harley Quinn number five. Um, I don't know if this is the end of it or if there's going to be a sixth one. I'll have to look. But uh, written by Katana Collins with art by Matteo Scalera, I've been really enjoying this. Kind of meshing, you know, the White Knight universe with old Hollywood uh, themes and concepts. I really, really dig. And now, according to this cover, we're going to be digging into the um, the version of Jason Todd in this uh, in this universe. So I'm really excited about this. Let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Book five. The producer's scheme is in motion, and the GTO is on high alert as Gotham's hope of a peaceful new horizon begins to collapse. Rattled and recovering from a close encounter with Starlet, Harley examines whether her complicated past with villainy is a burden or a boon to her new identity. She weighs two final options, break all ties and require to a quiet life, or embrace the chaos, risk, and responsibility of protecting the people and the place that created her. The choice itself may be fantasy, as a targeted attack on Harley ends in tragedy and drives Bruce to a reckless decision that could extend his prison sentence indefinitely. So yeah, really looking forward to this. I hope they don't kill her kids. I hope they don't kill her kids, because that would be terrible. Um, But we'll just have to see. Next up, we have Future State Batman Superman number two. This is written by Jean Lun Yang, with art by Scott McDaniel and Ben Oliver. I... I enjoyed the first issue. I think that um, it sets up, you know, it's a nice kind of send off to this current version of the Batman Superman story. And I would say primes you for the next uh, iteration of the story that is also going to be helmed by Jean Lun Yang, which I am so freaking excited about. Um, Really looking forward to this, you know, the Professor Pig stuff. I'm always a fan of Professor Pig, as dumb of a character as he is. Um, And I'm looking forward to picking this up. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Chapter 2. Trust. 
Superman has fallen deep into the Magistrate's kryptonite caverns, and now he's at the mercy of a gruesomely transformed Professor Pig. So what do animalistic body modification and caves of kryptonite have to do with the Magistrate's growing fascist state in Gotham City? That's what Batman needs to find out as the race against time to save the Man of Steel nears its end. All we know for sure is that during this battle, something happened that drove a wedge between Bruce and Clark. Discover the answers and the conclusion that will rock the world's finest to their core. So yeah, this is, as we know with the current um, future state, which is such a weird term, I guess, um, all of the Justice League are kind of on the outs with each other. So this is going to go a long way to establishing why that happened. So I'm looking forward to this for sure. Next up, we have Future State Superman House of L number one. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Scott Godlewski. I believe this is a one shot, just kind of showing what I assume is like the end game of uh Superman in this future state universe, but we will just have to see. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Centuries into the future, the bloodline of Kal-El, the hero we know as Clark Kent, continues. Meet a new generation of Kryptonian heroes as they stand against one of the greatest threats they have ever faced, a diabolical foe called the Red King. Get ready for the unexpected debuts of the twins known as Rowan and Ronan Kent, descendants of Jonathan Kent. Rowan is the new Superman of Earth, while his sister is a Blue Lantern. Also on board are Theander Ben-El, whose mother was Tamaranian, and other heroes, all led by the original Man of Steel himself. Plus, don't miss an appearance by the Black Racer. See how the future of the Superman family comes together in this wild, extra-sized special. So I'm glad that they're bringing the Black Racer back, because like I said earlier, the story for Black Racer just kind of, like, petered out, and I didn't really like the way that it wrapped up. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do here. Um, If you did enjoy the Future State uh, Superman World at War uh, story... I would pick this up too because at the end of the Clark portion of that, they said to be continued in Superman House of L. So definitely check this out. Next up, we have X-Men number 18. This is written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Mahmoud Asrar. I'm very, very excited to see Mahmoud Asrar back. You know how much I love his art and you know how much I was kind of missing his art with last issue. No disrespect. No disrespect to Brett Booth, but I just, I vibe with uh, Mahmoud Asrar's art a little bit more. But this one I'm very, very excited about. Let's dive into the synopsis and then we'll talk about why. Inside the vault. It's been a long time since the team went into the vault. A long time. So as this synopsis and as this cover shows, our team is coming back. Our team from the vault. Wolverine. Sink. Darwin, they are coming back, and that's the Wolverine to you, uh, are coming back out from the vault, and we're going to find out just what the hell happened within it. How long they spent in there, what's going on, and where they're going to go next. Very excited to pick this book up. It is just... I'm very excited, and it's why it's my only Marvel contribution on this week's list. I'm sure you uh, noticed that there were no other Marvel books here, but... 
very excited about this. Can't wait to see what's going on. And this is, and I still haven't caught up on a Ten of Swords. Ah! They keep pushing back the uh, the release date for that collection. So maybe I'll never read it. Who knows? But I'm very excited about this book. Really looking forward to this. And then finally, the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up is, funnily enough, DC Generations Forged number one. I know, right? This is written by Dan Jurgens, Robert Venditti, Andy and Andy Schmidt, with art by Paul Pelletier, Bernard Chang, Brian Hitch, and Mike Perkins. And I'm really excited about this book. This is part two of the Generations um whatever event they're doing not event that's going on that started off with generation shattered uh taking our miss our you know time displaced team of characters like green lantern sinestro uh batman in his you know detective comics 27 days superboy commandi and others and throwing them throughout time to face off against the uh this new team that has been set against them very excited to pick this up cannot wait this is like i said good silver age fun that is just able to i think give a like kind of examine all of the um all of the different eras of DC, and it's kind of exciting to kind of get this look back before we jump into whatever Infinite Frontier is going to promise. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Dispersed through time by the villainous Dominus, our ragtag team of generational heroes featuring 1939 Batman, Commandi, Superboy, Steel, Starfire, Sinestro, Booster Gold, and Dr. Light must find a way to restore the timeline, and what they ultimately discover is something far, far greater. You'll have to read it to believe it as time dies and generations rise. So, like I said, very excited about this good old-fashioned, um silly superhero fun uh with some very silver age concepts very much looking forward to this can't wait to pick this up so that does it for this week's comics countdown to recap we have future state superman versus imperious lex number two future state dark detective number four batman white knight presents harley quinn number five future state batman superman number two future state superman house of l number one x-men number 18 and generations forged number one and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us here on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and it really does help us out. Subscriptions, ratings, really helps me out, really helps the podcast out, just kind of raises our stock in the podcasting space and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five star rating and review on itunes apple podcasts whatever you want to call it i will read your review here live on the podcast you can join the likes of our four horsemen that being seafire nd josh from panels to pixels matt draper and burrito man 88 want to give a big thank you to those gentlemen for their reviews and i can't wait to hear yours also if you want to follow us, keep up to date with the podcast, please feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at GeeksplainPod. That's at GeeksplainPod. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you want to connect with me, uh, participate in polls that decide future episodes, that is the place to go. And if you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag, if you have a question for me, you want uh, me to explain something further, you want uh, recommendations for comics, just a quick uh, pitch or anything like that, you can send email 
emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Just put mailbag in the subject header. I will read it on the podcast here and I will address whatever you want to write. Just a quick reminder, we also do have in the feed a brand new uh, Geeksplained Extra series that we're doing every single weekend as part of our Snyder Cut Sundays on our whatever Mad Max Fury Road that we have to the Snyder Cut uh, next month. I believe it's March 18th, March 19th, one of those. Um, Very excited about uh, sharing these conversations alongside uh, good brothers and friends of the podcast, uh, Chris Carter and AJ Kincaid. We recorded most of these uh, last year kind of to prep for this. And every single Sunday, we drop two new episodes of this Geek Explain Extra series. We've worked our way from Man of Steel all the way through Aquaman this past weekend. And this weekend, we're going to be reviewing and kind of giving our unfiltered thoughts on Shazam and Birds of Prey. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Uh, Let me know what you think about anything we talked about today. Uh, Have you read The Black Mirror? Uh, Where would you rank it in your listings of the, you know, best Batman stories? Like I said, it's probably like in my top five, if not like top three, because I just, I love all of the different layers about it i loved getting to talk about it i love dick grayson as a character and i cannot wait to start picking up that nightwing book but as we head out of here this is episode number 148 uh we are very quickly approaching episode 150 as well as our three-year anniversary can you believe it three years doing this podcast i can barely believe it myself so uh thank you very much to everyone who's been on the ride with us whether you are a day one listener or you've just jumped on recently i thank you very much for listening means the world to me and i will see you right back here next wednesday for a brand new episode of the geek explain podcast same geek time same geek channel and for now for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening stay Stay safe, and we will see you next time. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions had an echo in so much space And when you're out there without care, yeah, I was out of touch But it wasn't because I didn't know enough I just knew too That made me cry